The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A listener's note: the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the fall of 2000, in the scenic town of Rocky Mountain House, a road crew was hard at work. They were doing paving in the area, about a two-hours drive northwest of Calgary. That September was particularly busy, as they tried to complete the job before the first inevitable snowfall. The work was hard, and the days were long. But it was customary for the crew to go out for dinner and a few drinks to cap off each night together. But following one of those gatherings, tragedy struck. He had phoned there and said he had been attacked, and people from the 7-Eleven said this guy was all bloody. That call led police to a horrific scene. He was an extremely angry person, and he was driven by anger. Well, we did take her to a doctor, and the first thing the doctor said to her was, "Let me guess, someone that's supposed to love you did this to you." I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, a case that stayed with me for more than 20 years. This is the story of Brooke Clapson and the violence that followed her. This story begins in Calgary in 1979, when Donna Eaton first became a mom. I was. I was terrified to have my first child at 21. She was born、um, by an emergency C-section, and so I was absolutely terrified that something was going to happen to her, or something was going to happen to me. So when they woke me up after surgery and told me I had a, a daughter, I wouldn't believe them. <laughs> she always, she always told me, "You just." Never believed I was really here. From that moment on, Brooke Clapson was a ray of sunshine in her mother's life. Oh, Brooke was, she was an absolute angel. She,、uh, she slept through the night early. She was loving and just adored animals, adored me.、Um, she was just such a good child. Like when she was in elementary school. I remember going to a parent-teacher interview, and the teachers telling me, "We hate to punish Brooke for being good, but we put the problem children to sit with her because she tells them, 'Be quiet. You'll never learn anything if you don't be quiet.'" Brooke was ten years old when Donna had her second daughter, Becky. All Brooke ever wanted was a baby sister, and the day her、uh, baby sister was born, she、uh, was the happiest girl on the planet. But there was a dark shadow looming over their home: domestic abuse. Donna said she eventually fled the relationship, but it was a struggle. 
She was a single mom and needed to provide for her girls. They didn't leave unscathed. Wounds and scars were already there. Brooke expressed her feelings through poetry. She loved to write poetry and stories. Um, Her poetry, I have many books of her poetry, and some of it's quite dark. Um, A lot of it's about her sister and how much she loved her sister. And I just, you know, she would put on such a smiling face, but you could see behind those eyes that there was a lot of darkness. And I did my best to try and help her deal with it. But again, you know, at that time, you got to think mid-90s, nobody wanted to talk about domestic violence and the effect it had on women or the family unit at all. As a teenager, Brooke struggled to escape the darkness. Um, that's when the wheels really came off because I think there were some really deep-seated issues that she just refused to talk about and refused to um, let me help her deal with. Studies have shown for children, exposure to violence can have long-term emotional, cognitive, social, and behavioral impacts. Because he was so abusive and violent that she wouldn't talk about it. And I tried to get us counseling, and I took her several times to the Eastside Walk-In Counseling Clinic, and she would just shut down. She wouldn't talk about anything. She went from being so driven by the rules to rules don't matter. I don't care. I'm going to get up and go to school and sit out behind the school and smoke dope all day. She wanted to try everything do everything. She didn't uh, feel the consequences. She, consequences be damned. (laughs) I'm having fun. From the moment she was 16, I I couldn't follow her around every day. I had to work. Um, You know, I had to just, by the grace of God, be there for her when she was willing to talk and share with me what was going on and try and guide her to the best of my ability. One veteran police officer I know who specifically worked in domestic conflict told me investigators often use the expression, you live what you learn. That's exactly what happened when Brooke started dating. She had quite a a parade of young men. She was a beautiful woman. And she had quite a parade of young men interested in her. Unfortunately, like most uh, children from abusive situations, she gravitated towards abusive men, controlling men, um, you know, boys that would not treat her well. I just was always so concerned for her. Brooke was 17 when one of her friends introduced her to the man who would change her life. His name was Jeremy Millett. Um, I didn't know much about him other than he didn't work, but he always seemed to have money. You have to remember, Donna was a single mom and Brooke grew up pinching pennies. Yeah, it was uh, trips to the thrift store and trips to Kmart. She always used to say, Mom, I can't be seen in Kmart. And I said, well, guess what? If someone sees you in Kmart, 
they're in Kmart too. So it could be your little secret. Jeremy Millette, on the other hand, was two years older than Brooke, and he lavished her with things she always dreamed of having. He used to give her gifts of designer clothes and shoes and bags. And I'd be like, where'd you get that? And oh, a friend gave it to me. And I'd be like, what friend? What's going on? Tell me. It turned out he had money because he was heavily involved in crime. He was a career criminal. He made his living by um, B&Es and shoplifting and selling drugs. She didn't tell me much about him, I think because of his lifestyle. She knew I wouldn't approve. And so she didn't tell me much about him. Donna said in their first year dating, Jeremy encouraged Brooke to skip school. She would take off for days at a time, and she didn't end up graduating. She was over 18. She came and went as she pleased. And, you know, I just, my main focus was to keep my door open for the day that the elevator started to move to the top, and she decided to go back to school. Throughout their three-year on-again, off-again relationship, Millette was in and out of jail. Court records show that by the late 90s, he was convicted of more than a dozen crimes, mostly property-related offenses, but he also had convictions for assault, breach of probation, and obstructing a peace officer. Donna's worst fears were coming true. Nothing she said seemed to help Brooke realize just how bad Jeremy was for her. She'd just be like, Oh, Mom, you don't know him like I do. Then it happened. Brooke fell victim to the same abuse she witnessed as a child. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Um, She called me just hysterical. He was really careful. He kicked her mostly in in the midriff and in the back. Not a lot of damage to her face at that time. Most abusers won't hit the face because most people can see it. And by this time, he was a well-seasoned abuser. I just said to her, I said, do you want to live like I've been living? You want, you don't want this in your life. And she agreed. And she started moving forward with her life. She got another job. She, um, you know, was not hanging out with him. He came back to Calgary and went into an anger management program at the Peter Lougheed Hospital. But Jeremy wasn't about to give up Brooke. He was obsessed with the telephone. He would phone all hours of the day and night. If he couldn't find her, he would would wait outside her work and get on the same bus as her, try and talk to her. Donna said every time Brooke tried to cut contact with Jeremy, he did something to manipulate her into taking him back. Well, because then he'd start stalking me or Becky or my mom. Then she kind of would try and smooth the waters and go back to him. She would tell me she'd broken up with him. And then next thing I knew, she would be, you know, taking phone calls from him. It was, it was a very volatile relationship. She would scream at him on the phone, like, 
are you stupid? What are you doing? Stop phoning me and bugging me. And next thing I know, she would disappear for a couple of days and she'd be staying at his place with his mom and his two younger siblings. Brooke felt sorry for Jeremy. She told her mom he didn't have a great family life and she felt she could help him turn his life around. Then comes the last beating that I was aware of. And she was staying with him at his mom's place. And he beat her up again one night. She got away from him and ran to a friend's place. And they told him, go on, get out of here. So she came home and this time he'd really gone after her face. She had black eye, chunks of hair ripped out. I still have the coat that she was wearing. There's a big footprint on the back of the coat. And she told me, she said, this time, Mom, I'm done. It's over. Well, we did take her to a doctor. And the first thing the doctor said to her was, let me guess, someone that's supposed to love you did this to you. The beating was so severe, Donna took photos proof of what Jeremy did to her. Donna even called police. But when officers arrived, Brooke wasn't willing to talk about what happened. When, like most victims, when you're beaten half to death, you feel partially responsible and ashamed. Once again, Jeremy Millette promised he would change. If she would just give him another chance, things would be different this time. Oh yeah, I love you. I won't ever do this again and love. That's when Brooke decided it was time for a change. She made a plan with one of her girlfriends to go on an adventure of a lifetime. Let's go travel Europe, get a job, save some money, we'll go to Europe. And to Brooke, that was very appealing. And that was the reason for the road crew job was because she was making good money She had a savings account for the first time in her life. It was flagging on road crews, so when you're going through a construction zone, you see the little flaggers there with the slow sign or the stop sign or, um, you know, directing traffic through the construction areas. She found their lifestyle quite appealing because these guys only work seasonally. And when they do work, they make big money and then they take the winter off and they travel or they you know just hang out do whatever she loved it she loved the freedom but she did say more than once that she missed us and she couldn't wait to come home to see us in late summer of 2000 brooke had a short break between jobs i'd come home from a camping trip and she was home And I said, oh, you're here. And she said, yeah, I'm just passing through. Um, I start this job in Rocky Mountain House. Uh, I think it was the Tuesday or Wednesday after the long weekend she was leaving. The night before, she had been out quite late. So I do remember getting up when she came in and saying, okay, well, good luck and I love you and, you know, keep in touch and she left me a note uh, that morning 
where they were staying and I had gotten her a, a tell us, call me card and it had something like a hundred dollars of uh, long distance on it and I said if you need me call me if you want to talk to me call me use this card you can call from anywhere that week Brooke began work in Rocky Mountain House a few weeks later Brooke's best friend called Donna she had some bad news to share Jeremy Millette had somehow tracked Brooke down she phoned me and she said you know he's up there And I said, he better not be. And she said, oh yeah, he's there. So I called Brooke and I left her a message and she called me back. No, mom, geez, you worry too much. He's not here when he was sitting right there because she knew I was gonna give her hell if I had found out he was there. I likely would have gotten in my car and driven up there and gotten her. What Donna didn't know was that Jeremy had been there for a few weeks. After he arrived in Rocky Mountain House, Brooke tried to help him by convincing the paving crew to give him a job. Well, he did get on with the crew and promptly hurt his back, so couldn't work, had to sit in the truck. He would listen to the radio conversations between the crew and Brooke and Asked these guys, why are you flirting with my girlfriend? Leave my girlfriend alone. So the tension started between him and the crew very, very early after his arrival. Brooke called her mom faithfully every few days, but she never talked about Jeremy. Donna didn't think there was anything to worry about. Her daughter sounded happy, if anything, a bit homesick. She says, I really miss you, Mom. I really miss you guys. I said, well, I can't wait for you to come home. I miss you, too. And she said, no, I really miss you. And I said, well, what do you think? I miss you, too, and I love you. And I want you to come home. She goes, I really love you guys, too. And that was our last conversation. In hindsight, Donna knows there was a lot Brooke didn't share. Because she wouldn't tell me what her plans were when she got back to Calgary. So you knew something was up. Yeah, I knew something wasn't right. On September 29th, 2000, RCMP investigator Dave Gravatt got called to Rocky Mountain House. Yeah, you know, Rocky Mountain House, oh, the town itself is fairly big. It was a population, I believe, when I was there last, because I I had worked there after. It was a town i think about 6500 people it was a it was a sort of a hub town for uh, oil and gas and uh, the logging industry so it was a very uh, uh, very busy town at that time gravat was assigned to the major crimes unit in red deer an hour east of rocky mountain house gravat is retired now but served with the rcmp for 32 years this case sticks out in his mind even two decades later my uh, role in this particular case is I was the, uh, would have been the primary investigator. Gravatt said it all started with a call to police about a man who claimed he was the victim of an assault. He was at the 7-Eleven. People from the 7-Eleven said this guy was all bloody. 
The man called his grandmother, who then called police. When they arrived, officers said the man was unruly, so he was pepper sprayed. As well, his hand was cut up. Police took him to hospital for treatment. Gravatt said, given his injuries and demeanor, something seemed off. Investigators retraced the man's steps, which led them to a local motel where he was staying. That's when police found a horrific scene. Brooke Clapson was dead. She had been stabbed 30 times. Jeremy Millette was taken in for questioning. Uh, he didn't tell the investigators anything. When we interrogated him, he, you know, he gave every excuse that he possibly could. And the interview was a couple hours, but I, he, he wasn't saying anything. He didn't say anything. Um, basically saying that, you know, he kind of int intimating that he had been a victim. And he was crying and uh, he really showed little or no remorse for his uh, girlfriend. It was all about him. You know, that's a pretty good indicator when you're watching something like this and you go, um, hmm, you know, someone so supposedly so close to you has been brutally murdered, um, you know, and it's all about you, you know, somehow, you know, you, your first instinct is, okay, there's, there's further things that we have to dig into here. You know, he was trying to save himself, basically. Sometimes when you're doing these particular interviews, it's sometimes with what you don't say that sometimes give investigators an opportunity to to take other avenues. Like he wasn't offering any any uh, any really concrete defense, but he wasn't saying anything that could help him. You know, like you know, if you're an innocent person and you've been accused of something, you know, you can tell by the the person's demeanor and his 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 ability to want you to believe what has happened or how he's not involved. Like sometimes you can tell within about 10 seconds that person's not involved. I don't care if it's a homicide or a break-in. When you bring someone in and they haven't done it or they haven't been near it, they'll just say, listen, I have nothing to do with this. There's their voice inflection and the way they're acting and their body language tells you. This guy here is slumped over and talking, oh, I don't know, I can't remember, uh, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't me. Uh, weak denials, but offering no, no concrete uh, background to, to what was happening the night before. RCMP investigator Dave Gravatt quickly learned Millette had a long history with police. Well, I would categorize him as nothing more than a, a criminal. You know, one of the things that uh, when you're doing these investigations, um, I got called from people in Calgary who were involved in the, the drug trade and they were offering to make me a deal that they would testify against Jeremy, uh, if I would have their charges withdrawn, you know, stuff like that. There was there was a couple of guys phoned me up and said, yeah, I, I really like Brooke and, uh, you know, Jeremy's a real piece of shit. And I was there when he assaulted her. And I said, okay, good, I'll take your statement. Well, first, we got to make a deal here first. I got charges with Calgary and uh, I want them withdrawn. I said, sorry, I can't help you. I said, uh, my investigation is going along very well. I said, I'm not going to jeopardize it because I want to get you uh, off on, a, on drug charges with the Calgary Police Service. They said, it doesn't work that way. Police also learned about the alleged prior abuse against Brooke. Even though charges weren't laid, the incident was documented. Yeah, there was a previous history. Uh, I contacted the Calgary Police and uh, 
there was um it was quite a there was a record of him beating on her and doing a lot of physical things where she didn't proceed with charges she didn't want to um so there was a background to him this was not this was not first time he'd ever assaulted her he was just just a person who had no self-esteem no no ability to think he was a follower had nothing to fall back on so what he wants to make himself feel stronger and better by picking on someone who is actually trying to help him you know trying to be in a relationship with him so you know and he took advantage of that and unfortunately that's why it sticks in my mind here's a young girl who's you know trying to help this guy out and then she it cost her her life I was there the day Jeremy Millette was arrested and charged. Back then, especially in smaller towns, the RCMP would walk offenders from their vehicle to the back door of the courthouse. So I stood just a few feet away from Millette as this happened. He was wearing a blue prison jumpsuit, and he tried to cover his face with a handcuffed hand that was wrapped in bandages. Jeremy Millette was accused of the second-degree murder of Brooke Clapson. It was overwhelming in terms of, you know, motive and opportunity. He was the only guy. I'm sure by now, given the background, this case seems like a bit of a slam dunk. But that's not how Gravatt operated. But, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's in the bag, homicide, and everything else. But, you know, there's no such thing. Because right from the beginning, when you get the phone call and the first person who shows up has to make really good notes on exactly what the person is saying. Okay, because if you don't do that and you go in there with sort of, oh, yeah, we got this guy, we got the knife, let's just lock him up and charge him. The law does not allow for that when you have first, second, first and second degree murder and, and, uh, and manslaughter. Once it gets to court in that big oak bench, the judge has to follow certain parts of case law and you have to break down the offense and what was uh, what was said, what was done. Now, if you do a shoddy job right from the beginning and just arrest the guy, take him to the detachment or to the hospital and don't do any follow-up with it, that person could walk away, okay? So if you don't do it right the first time, you get no second chance. Investigators worked tirelessly with veteran Crown Prosecutor Luke Carrada to make sure all evidence was gathered and the case was solid. You don't want to take a good case and have someone get off on it and just say, oh, it's a manslaughter and it was an act of passion and, and have someone do two years in jail. Because that, would, that, that in itself is not right because that's not what it is. You have to prove, okay? Just because someone appears to have done something, you still have to come in with, have enough background and history to make sure that that charge is followed all the way through and that you can convince a judge and or a jury that this person is guilty of what they've been charged with. The investigation unfolded very quickly. And at the same time police were gathering evidence, Donna Eaton was blindsided. It probably plays through my head at least once a day. I was at work and the receptionist called me and said, someone's here to see you. And it was like, who is here to see me? She goes to the person, what's your name? And she gave me a name and I don't remember it now. And I said, I don't know who that is. Are they, have they got the right person? 
because I was really busy that day. I was getting ready to go on vacation and and uh, she said, no, they, they, they're here and they said they need to see you. And I was like, oh, for goodness sake. So I went up front and here's two people standing at the front reception desk. And she said, is there some place we can talk? And I said, what's wrong with here? And I knew they were cops right away. And the first thing I thought is, oh my gosh, what has Brooke done now? Don't tell me I have to spend my vacation driving up to Rocky to pick her up. And they said, it's about your daughter, Brooke. And I said, oh, I know. And they said, well, we really need to talk to you in private. And I was like, no, you can tell me here. It's fine. They had a couple of chairs in the front reception area and they sat me down one on either side of me, which I thought was really weird. And the one officer, the female officer touched my arm and looked me in the face and said, Brooke is dead. And the first thing that came to mind was, cause she had told me on many occasions that she'd almost been hit by cars trying to get around the construction. So my first thought was that she had been hit by a vehicle and killed. And then she said, it was her boyfriend. And I looked at her and said, she doesn't have a boyfriend. And the cop said, well, do you know Jeremy Millette? And I went, that rotten rat bastard. He finally got her. I remember it like it happened yesterday. And then I started screaming, I guess. I don't recall much. In a heartbeat, her life was shattered. Gone. Gone. Everything. Hopes, dreams, stability, gone. Brooke, gone. Gone. Just hours later... Donna got another call. It was Jeremy Millette. He called our home from custody. I had just gotten home. Um, you know, it, it was insanity. There were doors opening and people coming through the doors and the phone was ringing and my boyfriend was talking to my stepmom on the phone. Then he hung up and the phone rang and I saw that it, on the call display that it was Rocky RCMP. So I picked it up to a click and I knew it was him. I knew it. Well, what I did was I hung up and I phoned right back to the RCMP station in Rocky. Like I identified myself. And I said, did he just use the telephone? So what had happened was he had told them that he wanted to call his lawyer and what they had to do was dial the number, give him the phone and then leave the room so he could talk to his lawyer. But what he did as soon as they left the room was he hung up and he phoned me. Nancy, the only thing I can, after years of thinking about this, the only thing I can come up with, it was number one, to continue to control and number two, to let me know that he was still 
able to get to me. That call has haunted Donna for years, but she had to focus on her family. She had Brooke's little sister, Becky, to worry about. Tell you the second hardest thing of this whole situation was looking my 10-year-old in the face and telling her her sister is dead and watching her innocence and childhood blow into a million pieces right in front of my eyes. I watched her little face explode into grief and hurt and betrayal. I saw my 10-year-old turn into a 50-year-old right in front of my face. You do put the grieving process aside. And I mean, I had Becky. Becky was only 10. I had to worry about her. I couldn't worry about me. I had to get this child on track and try and keep her as sane as possible. Back in Red Deer, Luke Carrada was working on the case. He's now retired after 35 years prosecuting for Alberta justice. It's a, an irony, perhaps, but yes, I imagine that it would have probably been your newscast that was at least one source of my being informed of the homicide. Investigators filled him in on the evidence they had gathered. With a serious criminal file like this that involves violence and where there are victims that are severely impacted. My practice personally was to move very quickly. And I would say that any capable crown that's dedicated would move very quickly to get the best grasp she or he could of the file as quickly as possible. Multiple stab wounds that appeared to be randomly placed. There was no apparent pattern. They were randomly placed stab wounds to the young lady's body. That frequently is indicative of rage, anger, loss of control. This was a very intentional and a very driven series of actions to take Brooke Glapson's life. Through evidence provided by police and witnesses, Carrada was able to get a clearer picture of Millette's violent history. He was a person that had apparently little or no emotional control. And uh, he, he was prone to anger as an, an immediate reaction to anything that, that, that caused him stress. The current information of the time with respect to domestic assaults was that there were 32 incidents of domestic violence on average to a spouse, and particularly the female spouse, before the violence was reported to the police. Given that information, abusive history is pursued because it's highly relevant to the investigation and the prosecution. 
The history, including the photos of the prior assault on Brooke, became very important. You'll remember Donna said she had a black eye and chunks of her hair ripped out. It was motivated by jealousy and unfounded jealousy and uh, by anger and by a lack of personal restraint. Uh, In other words, uh, personality deficiencies, immaturity, lack of discipline, uh, much like a spoiled child, uh, to put it in uh, every everyday language. She, I think, had concerns about an ongoing relationship. Brooke had concerns about an ongoing relationship with him. I think she had expressed that, uh, and it wasn't that uh, she uh, hated him or, or anything like that. She just felt that there was a sense of, of uh, she had a sense of wisdom about the situation where they should both go about their lives carefully. And, and uh, so she wasn't opposed to helping him get employment. And I don't think he could get employment in Calgary. So that is why she initiated him coming to the crew. And she thought it would be a good thing for him. And unfortunately, he was as unpopular on the crew as she was popular. Friends and co-workers provided key information about what happened that night. And that was later shared with Brooke's mother. Well, they were at the wrap-up party, the job wrap-up party. And he was acting all jealous and possessive towards Brooke. And Brooke was finally trying to break, break away from him because she knew she was coming to Calgary. And she knew she wasn't going to continue the relationship once they got back. And he was, you know, the guys were telling him to take off and leave them alone. And he was listening outside the window of the room they were partying in as these guys were calling him a loser and telling her she deserved better than him. And what was she doing with him? And he came rushing into the room and grabbed her by the arm and said, we're leaving. And that's when a couple of these guys jumped up and we're going to take him out back and beat the shit out of him for grabbing her and stuff. And once again, she came to his rescue and saved his skin, told the guys, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I'll, I'll leave with him. I'll leave with him. So she left with him. Even that night, After all he put her through, Brooke gave Jeremy the benefit of the doubt. Right until the end, she wanted to help him. When they got back to the hotel room, Millette attacked her. He stabbed her over and over again. He put a knife through her chest, upper extremities, hand, and groin. Some of those stab wounds penetrated her body completely. He continued to pierce the knife through her body, even after she was dead. This evidence was presented at a preliminary inquiry. During a prelim, the prosecution presents a lot of its case, and then a judge decides if there's enough evidence to go to trial. In this case, Millette was ordered to stand trial for second-degree murder. I had that hope that defense counsel would see the futility of trying to run a trial 
a trial that would just bring more pain upon the the people in in Brooke Clapson's world. And so that was my tactic. And it wasn't a secret tactic. I, I made it clear to defense counsel that that was my intention and uh, it was respected. And the defense counsel, so far as I'm concerned, uh, probably did uh, the, the most sensible thing that a, a very capable defense counsel could do. And that was he proposed a guilty plea. I should clarify, Prosecutor Luke Carrada was hoping Millette would plead guilty to second-degree murder, a deliberate killing that occurs without planning and doesn't meet the threshold for first-degree murder. I was absolutely resolved that this was not a manslaughter case. This was not a case where he stumbled along. Uh, he was, uh, for example, intoxicated or something of that nature. It was clear that there was a vague intention at, at the best, and I could prove it, that he came to Rocky Mountain House and to the, to, to, to the little world of, of Brooke Clapson with a hostile, angry animus. Dave Gravatt said he was aligned with Karada, that this was a clear case of second-degree murder. I remember thinking and the investigator saying, like, this guy, this guy is trouble, okay? You know, he's just a, you know, just a little guy, underweight, uh, mouthy crybaby. I said, but he's dangerous. And I said, you know, and the thing is, that's why we we went with, you know, have to go with the second degree murder and make sure it gets prosecuted. You know, I can't tell you how many hours Luke Carrad and I sat around talking about how, how we were going to make sure we had everything. Numerous hours we sat there and say, okay, let's make sure, like we really want to make sure this is done perfectly because this guy is dangerous. There's no way in the world that as an investigator or a prosecutor, you want anyone walking away from something where they should be punished. I mean, you know, guy gets a two year, two to four year manslaughter with, and then he's out of jail. And, and then this guy's back out on the street again, looking for the next brook. Basically my position when we went to court in the fall of uh, 2001 was that it's clearly a second degree murder. There's no issue. He's young. Uh, he has a minimum 10 years incarceration in which to uh, develop and seek and, and evolve uh, to being a better human being. And that's exactly how it all unfolded in court. Jeremy Millette admitted to killing Brooke and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. It was during the court proceedings that I first met Brooke's family. Donna was too upset to do an interview at that time, but I spoke with Brooke's grandmother. She wasn't perfect, who is? But um, she was... She's a perfect granddaughter, I can honestly say that. He actually killed the one thing that was probably the best thing that ever happened in his life. She cared for him. She used to say, Grandma, I, I want to, you know, like, nobody cares for him like I do. I want him to get better. I want him to get off drugs. And, and I care. I love him. In a statement made through his lawyer, Jeremy Millette apologized to Brooke's family. He hopes one day her family will be able to forgive him. He looked bad, but I'd feel bad too if I was going to prison for life. So whether he was remorseful on his own behalf or on what he did to Brooke. In sentencing Millette to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 10 years, 
Justice Jack Holmes called Millette's actions impulsive and horrible. I should note, while he was eligible to apply for parole after 10 years, the parole board doesn't have to grant it. The oversight of the parole board and the necessity to follow rules set out by the board really becomes apparent in this case. In 2013, Millette was assessed as a moderate to high risk to reoffend violently. At that time, 13 years after he killed Brooke, he was turned down for day parole, but granted unescorted temporary absences for personal development, specifically to attend a substance abuse treatment program. A year later, in 2014, he again applied for day parole, but was turned down. The board said, while on his leave to attend treatment, he accessed an online dating site and made a connection with a woman. In their decision, the board expressed concern that Millette told them he wasn't interested in a relationship, but his actions and words were inconsistent. The board concluded he demonstrated a lack of insight or deliberate manipulation. In 2015, the board noted he was assessed as a high risk for spousal violence. While out on an unescorted temporary absence, he failed the check-in. He said he was at the library when he was actually with a female friend and her children. His privileges were revoked. In 2016, escorted temporary absences were also suspended after he became involved with a woman in AA meetings. It was only in 2017, 16 years into his sentence and 17 years after he killed Brooke, that he was granted day parole. He's been living in a halfway house ever since. If you're serving a life sentence and you're granted parole, you'll always be supervised and under the direction of the parole board. So even if you're out on parole, if you breach your conditions, you could be sent back into custody. In January of 2020, he was again assessed as a moderate to high risk for violence and a high risk for intimate partner violence. The psychologist who did the assessment noted he has a history of deceiving staff and denying or minimizing his actions. He told the board, he didn't know why he became violent with Brooke or why he was unable to walk away rather than kill her. At that time, he was denied full parole, but day parole continued. As I wrote this episode in November of 2020, I received another parole decision. This decision states that Millette is currently employed as a general laborer and has participated in weekend leave passes from the halfway house without issue, but also noted ongoing concerns with online dating and lies he's told about his online activity. The board said Millette met a woman and at the time of his latest hearing was in a romantic relationship. He is not allowed to go to her home until his parole officer can visit the home and interview the woman's child. Millette's day parole is extended for another six months. More than 20 years after he killed Brooke, he is still not granted full parole. The prosecutor, who ensured Millette would be held accountable, 
said that speaks volumes about his risk. That's suggestive of serious shortcomings and failures on his part to be constructive about the incarceration. It's consistent with him being a sociopathic personality, consistent with him being narcissistic, immature. Both Karada and the lead investigator, Dave Gravatt, still think about Brooke and her family. I took particular note of the dynamics of the relationship and uh, the fact that Brooke was a young lady that was motivated and very dedicated to helping Jeremy move ahead in life, to mature, uh, to become a little more uh, constructive in his life, productive. And uh, it struck me as a, as a great tragedy that Brooke did not realize uh, the futility of her efforts. Biggest part of this and the why I remember was always the family. I always feel, I always feel for the family, uh, you know, after. I mean, they were, seemed like very nice people. And it was just, you know, one of the things that was uh, sticks with me and I hope they find peace. And I was a parent at that time myself. I had kids that age, you know, I got five kids and I've got, had kids that age too. And, you know, as a parent, you're always hoping, but you know, your kids, when they get to be later teens and that, they do have their own life. And sometimes you're not always privy to everything that's happening. Isn't it great that we know he's got a life sentence and that, that at least they can have a, a hold on him to get him back in jail if he offends? Because if you don't have that, you know, somebody in the year 2020 says, what, this guy did a murder one time? We're like, we're, the system failed us. Well, it didn't fail you. We actually have him. We, the police and the prosecution did as much as they can to make sure that this guy is always under the watchful eye of uh, the parole board. Brooke's mother attends every hearing. I have to tell the truth for Brooke. I am her voice now. And the way he tells it cannot be the way the parole board or the public hears it. Number one, my worry is that he's going to come looking for us. Um, Just because I have been a thorn in his side since the moment he met Brooke. Number two, that he will hurt someone else because he does, he starts to hunt the minute someone's back is turned. He's gone through a relationship with someone in his AA group. He hunts from the moment he's been given an absence. He hops on a computer and hunts, puts on profiles on plenty of fish, and he hunts for a new victim immediately. More than two decades after her daughter was brutally murdered, Donna Eaton still struggles with the pain and grief of losing Brooke. Like, everyone wants you to get over it, move on. Well, we do move on. But I'm telling you, the system drags you right back in, like a tidal wave. Because every time you try to heal, there's a hearing, or... Yep, we just get to a place where we're feeling comfortable and we're feeling we're coping well and things are moving and then bam, 
he wants out. The statistics on domestic violence are staggering. Most go unreported. If you know someone who is being stalked or abused, don't give up trying to help them. Because the manipulators are so good at keeping the victims within their reach, they people assume, well, she must like it, or she wants to be there, or she wouldn't be there. It's not that simple. I remember telling her many times, baby, next time he'll kill you. Don't give him the opportunity. If you're a victim of abuse, there is no doubt it can feel overwhelming, but there is help available. If it doesn't feel right, leave. If for one minute there is something that you know is not right, leave. And the most dangerous time is when you are making the break. Be your most diligent when you have finally decided to make the break, because that's when the offender becomes violent and will kill, is when you finally made the break. And that's what people forget because, okay, she's made the break, she's not gonna see him anymore. That's when the abuser becomes the most dangerous because they know that their victim is getting away. Every day, Donna recalls her last conversation with her daughter. She holds those words dear, as Brooke always knew she was supported and loved. I really love you and I really miss you and I can't wait to see you again. If I didn't have that to reflect back on, that little conversation of both of us expressing how much we loved each other and how much we missed each other, I really don't think I could have made it this far without her. Um, Because, you know, my relationship with Brooke, I always felt like I was forever giving her shit. I was forever, you know, trying to get her on the right path and, and angry with her for something. And for our last conversation to be heartfelt and how much we meant to each other really, really holds me up when I need it. Remember Brooke's plan to go on an adventure of a lifetime with her girlfriend after she finished working in Rocky Mountain House? Her mother, sister, and friend still went on that trip. In the end, Brooke's ashes were scattered all over Europe by those who loved her the most. If you are the victim of domestic abuse or know someone who is, there is help available. In Canada, you can call the Assaulted Women's Hotline toll-free at 1-866-863-0511. Thank you for joining me and listening to Brooke's story. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. 
Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.